This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, welcome to Health Check. I'm Joyce Teo, a senior health correspondent with The Straits Times. In today's podcast, we would like to talk about what it takes to die well, which is ultimately about living a good life. So many people want to die in the comfort of their own homes, surrounded by their loved ones, if possible. However, the reality is that it is not so easy to do so. So today we have invited Ms. Simbi Hia, the Executive Director of the Singapore Hospice Council, to tell us more about the challenges involved and what the fraternity is doing to make it easier for people to live out their lives at home. Hi, Bi Hia. Welcome to Health Check. Hi. Thanks for coming here today. The first question that I have for you is, you know, can you tell us more about the challenges involved in enabling someone to die at home if they wish to? It is really not so easy to die at home. Um, I think if you look at the population, we are having uh, very small family sizes. That itself already is a challenge in terms of caregivers. Caregiver stress, lack of confidence, lack of awareness. They are not so sure they're able to look after their loved ones at home. So the easiest, most convenient preference is to put the loved one, say, in an institution. Caregivers, a lot of them are also holding jobs. We have read too many stories about caregivers having to quit their job to look after a parent at home. I think these are very common trends that we are seeing. And I think really there is um, quite a low literacy on death and dying matters. And without awareness, without the knowledge, you don't have that confidence. And, and all this adds up to the challenges of someone dying at home. A patient who has very complex medical issues may not be able to die at home um, because there are additional specialised or expert care that is needed. It's a lot more complex than what everybody would think. I mean, we have done that in the exhibition at the NLB where we get people to just press a counter mm. um, and it's a very obvious about 60 to 70% prefer to die at home. Mm. Um, but even at every juncture in your life's journey, you may change your view about where you prefer to die. Mm. You know, when we do the 101 sessions with a group of seniors, someone who is um, aged at 70, 80 plus, it was a 50-50 that they, they want to die in an institution. When we mm. actually asked them, they said, because I only have one daughter, I don't want to inconvenience her. I was just wondering, like, you know, when we talk about all these people wanting to die at home if they can, are they mostly people at the end of their life when they say that or when they're younger? I think we are looking at a more organised way of doing surveys and getting the feedback based on age, based on gender. Um, I think the last one that was big scale, I think was by Lian Foundation in 2014. So that's almost 10 years already. So it is time for us to do a lot more and measure what we call deaf literacy. Because when a person is literate, then they are more aware, they have the knowledge, and that's when you can be a more confident caregiver or a more confident patient. Right. Okay, interesting. That's what we are going to talk about, right? What can be expected in the months ahead. So I was going to ask you what can be done to make it easier for people to die at home, but you know, given the challenges that you mentioned, it sounds like that's quite a lot to be done, actually. So um, where do yes. we start? Yeah. We, we are actually playing catch-up a little bit because, you know, as everybody is aware, we have a super-aging population. So we are reaching out to the people who are patients or going to be patients, the more senior, the aged one. We're also looking at the young ones so that in 10, 15 years' time, when they become caregivers, they would already know what they're supposed to do. So we can't be solving today's problem only. We have to look ahead. 
So a few things that we are looking at as individuals, what can you do? And that is being prepared, right? Now we are rational and we are not emotionally distraught, you know, and we are able to really do our homework now and find out a lot more as future patient, as future caregiver. Well, everyone in our lifetime, we will at least be a caregiver one time or other, some more than others, right? And it's really about being prepared. So that's on an individual level. As a family, conversation should be conducted. What are your preferences? What are your beliefs? What are your values pertaining to your own care preferences, right? And then that's also about training, getting involved as a volunteer perhaps and getting to know what it entails. So if you can volunteer with any of our member organisations, you go through the process, we are more aware. So as a family, talk about it. As a community, we are doing community signposts. We're training volunteers at every constituency in organisations, be it religious, be it an employer, where rings of support can be given to caregivers and to patients. So as a community, for example, in a constituency, we're training volunteers up. So they are aware of um, where to do information signposting. So if they come across someone who says that, you know, during a house visit and someone says, my mother is dementia, bedridden, you know, I got to feed her by tube feeding, um, I don't know what to do with her. Then what's the follow-up question, right? Is your mother on any care program? Is your mother being looked after by anyone? And then they can then signpost them for the correct services. Mm -hmm. Because palliative care comes in different settings. It is not uh, one single setting. So uh, that is in the community side. So if you are a church group, a Buddhist group, if your congregation, your devotees, you know someone who is going through this process, what can that organisation do? What can an employer do if your staff comes to you and say, I have to resign because I'm, my father is on palliative care and I need to go home and look after? What can a HR manager do? Right. Then as a fraternity, we are looking at building capacity, building capabilities, right? You want, um, if like I say, there's a preference of more people wanting to die at home, then a home hospice's team's capacity, capabilities must go up, right? And here we are looking at tapping on the notes within the community, like general practitioners, um, polyclinic doctors and nurses, where we can then beef up that connection at the ground. So sometimes it's also not easy for a GP to conduct a conversation with a family you know, whose loved one is facing a terminal illness. Not every healthcare professional is aware of how to do such things, mm -hmm. right? So palliative care is a trained area, it's a specialist area as well. So we're hoping to beef that up. We're also hoping to improve the seamless transition between one setting to another. So when a patient falls ill in any illness trajectory, you may be at home, you may be in a day centre, you may be in an inpatient hospice care, or you may be specialist consultation. So there are four different settings, but in the illness journey of any person who is facing a terminal illness, you go in amongst these settings. And we're hoping that it will be a seamless transition, less stress for patients, less stress for family members. Right. So can you tell us like, you know, roughly what, what is being done? So you say you hope that they'll be doing. So is that training being done for the GPs, for instance? Okay, so Singapore Hospice Council, we will be embarking on a major engagement exercise with the general practitioners and the polyclinic doctors and nurses. We are going to do a landscape survey of how, as a council, as a fraternity, how can we bring them into the fold and what is it that they require, what kind of training that they require. I think it's not so easy as a general practitioner, you run your clinic, you have to get a locum in if you go for training. 
So there's always opportunity costs. And it's really about what will motivate them. And we're going to do this survey, quantitative and focus group discussions, where we want to hear from them. And hearing from them, we are then able to strategize and work out a plan where we can then get them into the fold. So can you help us understand this a little bit better? Like say for the public who thinks of, um, you know, being able to die at home, we would think of like home hospice care. So given that the GPs like training and you mentioned that they'll be involved, how would it work in this whole ecosystem? Um, so home hospice is still the main service. But I think they're also looking at what we call generalists, and that includes the GPs and the um, polyclinic doctors. We have spoken to some GPs, and one of the GPs had shared this, which I thought is quite an important point, is that you know when the GP has been with a family for, say, 20, 30 years, and the GP might have known this Akong Ama for very long, but suddenly they are told that this Akong Ama is diagnosed with cancer. And then the patient now is under the care of, say, National Cancer Centre, or under the care of specialists, or under one of the restructured hospitals. So the GP actually is not aware of what goes on. So, so there was a request actually to see how do we do the information look back. So it, it is a little bit more complex. And the ultimate goal is that we hope in two years' time, we're able to set up a Singapore palliative care network where the specialists and the GPs and the polyclinic doctors in this network and they're able to then tap on the expertise of palliative care specialists mm-hmm. or on some of the care and some of the practices. That, that is the aim. Right, so given that scenario, you know, how will it look like um, in the future for someone who wished to die at home? Can you just, you know, take us through the, the whole journey? The oh. aspiration is that no one should die alone. Everyone should die with some kind of care as comfortable as you can based on your preferences of care. A future patient would know what they want and is empowered to make the decision and, you know, have that written down based on their beliefs and their values and their family is aware of it. Caregivers would be more resourceful. They would know where to go for resources and they should not feel helpless. Then there should be seamless transition between settings for a patient that you wouldn't be so stressed not knowing you know, if you bring your loved one home, what will happen? And are you able to care for the person um, to the best of your ability? I, I think this is a big question at the moment. You know, in the past, you have more family members. I mean, like for me, I come from a family of seven, five daughters. Mm-hmm. So when my two parents were not well, each one of us has a role. One, make sure that the one at home cook food. One, make sure there's cooked food for the one in the hospital. Then one drives around because she has a license. And then one is a daycare uh, carer. And one is a nightcare carer. But in the context of today's families, you don't have this luxury anymore. You, you don't have five people going around. And therefore, it's really about building up the confidence of a caregiver, knowing where to go for help. So it's about resources. It's out there. But there's so much out there that I think um, it's kind of a challenge to navigate that system. So that's what we're hoping to do. And then it's really about building up the uh, belly. I, I always call it belly. You know, if you look at care now, it's like a pyramid. The specialists are on the tip of that triangle. We're trying to build that middle, the belly part of it. So that's where the GPs and the polyclinic doctors, um, the community would come in to play an important role in this journey. So, so that's what the future would look Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. 
And now back to our podcast episode. Now back to my conversation with Miss Simbi here, the Executive Director of the Singapore Hospice Council on Palliative Care. Mm, okay, so maybe can you tell us more about this belly then? How much of a role will they play? See, if I have somebody, if I'm caring for an elderly parent who has various conditions but maybe decided not to receive any more treatment, so they'll be at home? They'll be at home. And um, based on that scenario, it's likely to be a home hospice team. And then the home hospice team will then have to work with the GPs and the um, uh, polyclinic doctors. We are working on that, engagements, talking to them on what works for both parties. So what they're looking at, a model, is really that hopefully the specialist will be there looking at the patient, but medication and certain symptoms may be able to be managed by a GP. But how does the GP come into the picture? Is this paid services, not paid services? How does the funding model work, right? So it's, it's very complex. In Singapore, there's 11 primary care networks of GPs and polyclinic doctors. And the initial response has been quite positive. But the how is where we have to do that survey. So if the primary care physicians actually help out, um, help the specialists out, right? That means more people will be able to access this care. Yes. So, so just to give an example, now palliative care and hospice started with cancer patients. That's the history. But we are now seeing a lot of chronic illnesses. So when, when you have the chronic ill, aged seniors in the community, who do they see is their GP or the polyclinic doctors. So they, they won't be a cancer case where it's, you know, go mm, upstream to say right. a, a specialist, right? So they are still in the community. It's pure old age, pure frail, mm. you know, that kind. And this is the group that the GPs and the uh, polyclinic doctors would likely be seeing. So yeah. the specialists will probably take those with more complex cases, right, in terms of illness. Oh, I see. These are likely the ones with no cancer, right? Yeah. But when do no they cancer. actually enter um, palliative care then? So We're looking at generalists in that sense. So, so it's not so much of a clear-cut prognosis of one year or three right. months. Okay. Yeah. But they do need that kind of support. They do need that kind of conversations as well. I see. So it's not about, say, if you have cancer, you're at the hospital, they will actually discharge you, right, to palliative care, hospice care. Yes. So if you're talking about generalists, it would be like somebody living at home. There's no clear date, but you are in touch with your GP and if something happens, the doctor is there. The kind of non-cancer patients. It is quite different because because the... So like just now I shared the stats, right? The cancer patients' median... Is about 32, 33 days, one month plus minus. Mm. The non-cancer is about two weeks, less than two weeks. So if someone who has advanced dementia, bedridden, um, so they have a criteria set of who qualifies for palliative care. If you're looking at the belly, right, when you have the generalists coming in, that's where we're expanding the capacity of being able to start people on their journey, on their palliative care journey earlier. I see. So it's a big change actually because I think when we think about palliative care, it's mostly people who are already sick and maybe seeing a specialist and then they're discharged to such care. Yeah. So if you're talking about people in the community, um, they're just They'd probably be seeing doctors Mm. frail for a Mm. lot of other things. Yeah. So there is a, the landscape is moving very quickly Mm. Um, and, and therefore, at this juncture, while I should have a very clear vision, mm. I, I don't quite have that yet because it is still moving a lot. Um, mm. I think in Singapore, we look at palliative care, hospice care similar. Mm. But I think the thinking is a little bit changing as well. 
whether should it be differentiated, like the US, where you have palliative care first, then towards the end of life is hospice care. So in US, in some literature, it's a progression from palliative care to hospice care. But I think in Singapore, it's taken to be similar. Right. So um, earlier you mentioned death literacy. Yeah, tell us more about it. We are hoping to use an index to measure so that we can track um, the literacy of the community. So when we talk about death literacy, if we look at the Australian, there's a death literacy index model. They look at a lot of things. Your own experience of what you have gone through, knowledge that you learn, training, whether you're aware of in the community matters or people or things that are related to death and dying. For example, do you know where is the funeral? You know, who is the funeral services that you can call? And in Australia, they look at cemetery. So, you know, cemetery worker. So what they term community death workers, people that you can go to when you are talking about death and dying, a service provider within this sector. Singapore Hospice Council has done surveys before. The previous surveys has indicated the Chinese 65 and above, they tend to be more illiterate and they tend to rely on audio. And that then, as a council, we can then look at messaging through radio stations because that's what they will listen to. If we produce a lot of literature, they are not able to read. Mm. So it doesn't help. So an index will actually help us to understand the population needs better for us to then work out strategies to close those gaps. So what else can the public expect in the months ahead? We are looking at um, a home hospice uh, capacity dashboard um, because I think that some of the problems we have would be the hospital or doctor who is referring a patient to hospice, home hospice in particular, sometimes is not aware of what whether that home hospice can take that particular family. And some of the service providers do so by geography, the area that they serve. What we're hoping to do, we are already doing it actually, and we're hoping you get it out soon, is once a referring doctor, say in a hospital, discharging a patient home and needing a home hospice team to come in, by keying the poster code, it should pop up which home hospice is able to refer this case to. Mm-hmm. So the connection will be faster, mm-hmm. less details. We're making it as seamless and as less stressful as possible for the patient mm-hmm. and family. So that's something that I think the patient and family can look forward to probably in months, in a few months' time. The other one we're looking at is the doctors have come together to produce a resource book for pediatrics patients when a child falls ill. And that one would allow parents to have tips on how to talk to the akongama, the aunties, the uncles, the healthy siblings. We're also looking at a help desk, um, a nine-to-nine help desk. Uh, we, we hope that... Um, when a family member or a patient is in that last stretch and is very stressed, they're able to he- hear a human voice over the other end who is able to help them navigate the system. Because when you're distraught and you're emotionally not quite rational, you need people to help you. With the dashboard that you mentioned, I guess um, people won't be left out when there are problems with referrals. Yes. So what we're hoping to do is not to have someone out of the system. That at any juncture there would be a care team with them. I see. Yeah. If the majority of the population prefers to die at home, then it's really how do we improve the infrastructure, be it digital system, IT system, or you know, in terms of having manpower, how do we realise and make their preferences and respect their preferences to have, have them die at the place that they prefer? My father was on palliative care. 
So, you know, when he couldn't sleep at night, I was the night caregiver. So I'll be sitting up with him throughout the night. And the next day I go back to work. Wow. So, so you know, if, if I had known about palliative care then, and hopefully when it is my time, that I know the options that I can have and exercise as a patient, and I have a GP who is looking after me, and a specialist, palliative care specialist also looking after me, and the two teams are talking to each other, I think that will be the most ideal situation for me as a future patient. Right. Accessibility, I think it's very important. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, we'll see what happens. I mean, we're talking about the GPs, but we yes. really need them to yes. come in as yes. well. Yes. Right. But I think there's a lot of stress on the GPs. So I think it's really about hearing them and what is possible, what works, what don't work. Because at the end of the day, we're looking after every future patient, every caregiver as well. And we want to make sure that it is um, able to help plug any gaps. Yeah, thanks for telling us more about this. Yes. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Joyce Teo. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in the podcast text description below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.